Well, I'm looking out across the uh, worship center here, and I'm seeing a number of you with glasses, and I know that some of you uh, also need glasses but are wearing perhaps contact lenses. Uh, If you're like me, uh, you take these off, and then suddenly things get a little bit blurry, maybe more blurry for some of you than for others. Um, I think if I squint, I could probably make out pretty much most of you here. Most of you sit in the same place every week, so I just kind of know where you are anyway. Um, But, you know, my, my vision's not too awful terrible, um, now, some of you uh, can't say that, I'm afraid. Some of you have quite bad vision. Um, I've seen some of your glasses. I've put them on, and I've tried to look through them, and I can say they, they bend light so much that you can just about travel through time through them and see the past or something. It's, it's really bad, but uh, fortunately, mine's not that bad yet, at least at this point in my life. Um, but we, we wear glasses to, to see the world, don't we? We look through our lenses to perceive the world around us, and we, we're used to looking through them, but we don't often look out at them, do we? We're always looking through them rather than at them. Well, in the same way, God's Word, the Bible, is a lens through which you and I as Christians look at the world. It's how we view the world. It's how we view God. It's how we view ourselves and our place in the world. It's how we understand things, and they're not lenses for the eyes so much as they are as the scriptures are lenses or a lens for the mind and the heart and the soul. And though we look through God's word, sometimes it's helpful to stop and look at God's word. And that's what I want to try to do this Sunday and for the Sundays in September is take some time to look at, at God's word and, and ask questions such as where did it come from and, and uh, can it be trusted? Um, what was the process by which the scriptures came to us. And these messages are going to be a little different than usual. You may or may not have noticed that I have a a little clicker here. That's because I have prepared a slideshow, and that is going to be on the screen throughout here. And I wanted to prepare a slideshow for you because the the type of sermons that these are going to be are are going to be a little more, um, I want to say, teachy. So it'll be a little more of of a teaching component than perhaps what you're accustomed to. And it's okay to change things up every now and then. It's okay to to do something a little different. And that's what we're going to try to do for the next number of weeks. And so um, I'm going to be doing a a four-part series here on what I've titled um, The Good Book. And the first sermon here, as you've already seen in your bulletin, and now on the screen there, is uh, is God Breathed. Okay, so let's uh, let's begin by uh, taking a, a moment to pray, and then we'll dive right in. Lord, we want to be a people who, who hear from your word and, um, and who put the things that we hear into action in our lives. But we, we take these moments this morning and the Sundays throughout the month and we, we offer them to you and we ask that you would use them to teach us more about uh, the, the reliability of your word and the trustworthiness of your word and the authority of your word. Help us to, to join the psalmist when he, when he prayed. Open our eyes to see the wonderful truths in your instructions. Lord, open our eyes to see and give us hearts to receive, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Christianity, as you know, is one of the three great monotheistic religions in the world, um, alongside of Islam and, and Judaism. And when you think of monotheism, you think of uh, what, what could be called transcendence. That is this idea that that the, the one God is distinct from the rest of creation. 
Now, though all these three monotheistic religions affirm this central you know, worldview-shaping understanding that God is transcendent, he's not a part of his creation, he stands apart from his creation, there are still major distinctions between uh, Islam, say on one hand, and then, well, for our sake of this morning, Christianity. In Islam, Allah is uh, essentially a unitary being that is unknowable. You can't really know Allah. He doesn't reveal himself, but rather he reveals his will, and he reveals his will through his messenger, okay? His purpose is not to bring mankind into fellowship with himself. His purpose is to bring mankind into submission, which, by the way, is exactly what the word Islam means. It means submission. And so at the heart of this, one of the three major monotheistic religions in the world is not any, any concept of, of a real relationship with, with God or any type of union with God, any, any sense of a, a, a love or any type of, of fellowship. No, it's all about submission to Islam, uh, submission, I mean, to Allah through obedience uh, of his will. Now, Christianity, on the other hand, affirms something quite different. Uh, we don't hold that the one God is a unitary being, but a, a triune being who is persons in communion, Father, Son and Spirit. Each person is God, and yet each are in the other, and, and together the three are one. And that's the classical definition of the Trinity. And within the Godhead, you have these persons who share life, who share love. They're in this eternal communion of life and love. And though God is distinct from his creation, he has acted in creation to not just reveal his will. No, the God of Christianity has acted in his creation to reveal himself. He wants to be known. He's very different from the God of Islam. He wants to be known. He is personal, and he has taken action and, and spoken and, and acted within history, and this is what we call revelation. God making himself known through words and actions in history. And this revelation has been recorded in the Bible. And so we believe that the Bible is God's self-disclosure to the world. You have this one God who's distinct from his creation, but who has, through his words and his deeds, entered into creation to make himself known. Now, when I first met my wife, we were at a, I've probably told you this story a hundred times. You, you preach long enough uh, to the same group of people and they hear all your stories again and again. Um, you, you know probably more details than I'm going to talk. I'm not going to really share any details other than to say, when we first met each other at uh, a little camp meeting in the middle of nowhere, Alabama, and by the way, I think that's the only place in Alabama is that right? Is nowhere, everywhere is nowhere, Alabama? Have I offended anybody from Alabama this morning? Is Addison in here somewhere? I know she's from Alabama. That's just a little tongue-in-cheek there for you uh, Alabama folks. Um, by the way, my wife's from Mississippi, which is really nowhere, uh, I promise you. Um, but we're in the middle of nowhere, Alabama, and we, when we met, we, our eyes met, and we instantly began observing each other. All right, you know what I'm talking about. We were observing one another. But here's the thing, you can observe someone all day long from a distance and never know them, right? You, you can know maybe some things about them. You can, you can ascertain, you know, the, the color of the eyes or the length of the hair, you know, the, the, the type of laughter or smile. You might hear the voice and you learn some things about the person, but you don't know a person. What does it take to know a person? Well, that person has to disclose themselves to you. 
And they disclose themselves, who they are, through their words and through their actions. It is through their, the, the expressions of their personhood in history, through a relationship that you come to know a person. And that's kind of like what we're talking about here this morning when we're talking about the nature of God's word. His revelation, therefore, we can say, is personal. God hasn't just revealed himself through some sort of you know, abstract set of philosophical facts. So like this, this scroll descends down with all these truisms or these ideas, and somehow that's how God is making himself known. No, he has revealed himself through his words and his actions. And so you can say, therefore, that his revelation is historical. It's personal. He's making himself known, but he's doing it in history. And so we have this interpersonal God who's, who's, um, who's making himself known. And that's the thing about relationships is every interpersonal relationship has a history of some kind. You can, you can look back on the conversations that you've had and the experiences that you've shared and the things that, ha- that have comprised your, the, your relationship over time. And you can, from those things, determine what, who a person is and what a person is like. And you can even come to expect what the person will do because you know who they are. And so, because God is a personal God and he has acted in space and time, we can say his revelation is historical. And there's no other religion in the world that stakes literally everything on the historicity of its sacred book. Christianity stands alone and Judaism as a connection to that. It's it's the historicity of the Bible that that we cling to and cherish. It's not just a book of ideas and principles. No, it is a faithful record of God's saving words and actions in time and space. But here's the thing. God not, hasn't only entered into time and space through words and actions, but also through him, he himself has entered into time and space. Revelation is not only personal and historical, it is incarnational. Because God, through his son, actually took on flesh and entered into the world to make, to make himself known. And so you can ask the question, if you want to know what God is like, where do you look? Well, you look to Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. And the Bible is God's word because it points to him. Every bit of the Bible, from the first pages of Genesis to the last pages of Revelation, point to Jesus. We know from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that it says, Long ago God spoke many times, and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. But now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son in a definitive way. John 1.14, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. A real man, flesh and blood, who walked this earth and made God known as personally and as clearly as possible. Revelation is incarnational. And lastly, of course, it's scriptural. If revelation takes place in history, we need a record of it, don't we? We need to know what happened. It needs to be transmitted from generation to generation to generation. And so, through God's providence and through his working in the world, his revelation became inscripturated. And we believe that this process of inscripturation has resulted in scriptures that are, you see the the fifth bullet point there, that are God-breathed. And that's the phrase that I really want to hone in on this morning and talk about what has been referred to as biblical inspiration. And to do that, we're going to look at a passage 
that I'm sure those of you who have been a part of church for any part of your life have probably heard at some point. You're familiar with it. Uh, it's a passage that you should know well. Um, it's going to be on, pa- on page 961 of your guest Bibles if you happen to grab one. But if not, it'll be on the screen. We're going to be looking at uh, 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. Now, t- uh, Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, and in the verses immediately before the ones I'm going to read there on the screen, he's saying basically, hey, in these last days, there's going to be all sorts of deceit in the world. There's going to be people out there who are, who are lying, people who are trying to, to, to pull you astray from the things that you know. There, there's even going to be persecution, which is, which is meant to intimidate you to turn away from your faith. And he says, in the midst of all that, I challenge you to, to trust the ones that you know. Trust the voices in your life that have been, that have been reliable. And most importantly, trust the scriptures. Cling to the scriptures. Listen to what they have to say. Look, at, look here in, in um, beginning there in verse 14. He says, um, But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true. In the midst of this world full of, of deceit and, and persecution and, and, and uh, ideas that would seek to pull you away from the things that have impacted and transformed and given you life, he says, in the midst of all that, this is what is true. You know what is true. For you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the holy scriptures from childhood. And they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. And here's the the verse that we're going to focus on. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true. And to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now, the word there in the NLT that is translated uh, inspired comes from the Greek word theonoustos, which means God-breathed or more, e- even more literally, God-spirated. So this idea that uh, it's this action of God of breathing that is a creative or life-giving force. Now, you might be saying, well, that sounds kind of familiar. It sounds kind of like what happened when God created, and you would be correct. You remember back in uh, Psalm 33, it says, the Lord merely spoke, and the heavens were created. He what? He breathed the word, and all the stars were born. Or perhaps you're thinking about the creation of man. You remember from back in Genesis chapter 2, when it says, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. So throughout the scriptures, we can see that it is by the word of God or by the breath of God that God creates and gives life. Well, so it is true also that the scriptures are the product of God's creative breath. Paul is not saying in this passage that the reader of scripture is inspired when they read it. Now it is true, the Holy Spirit superintends the reading and the proclamation of God's word, even now. I'm, I'm, I'm counting on and, and expecting and relying upon the Holy Spirit doing his ministry in this room as we speak. I'm, I'm up here doing my very best with all my weaknesses and all my frailty and all my imperfection to rightly understand and proclaim and expound upon the scriptures, but I'm, I'm, at the end of the day, I can't convince you of anything. I'm not capable of, 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 
changing anything in your life or in your mind or in your heart. So I'm trusting the Holy Spirit. He's the one that's going to affect the change. He's the one that superintends the, the right teaching and preaching and proclamation and study of God's word. He's the one that comes alongside of and, and helps us to not only understand it, but to, to, but to apply it to our lives. And he even gives us the power to live it out. Absolutely. But Paul's not saying simply that the, the person who reads the scriptures is inspired or God-breathed in this sense. He's not saying that. Nor is he just saying that merely the authors of the scriptures were inspired. Look again at what he says. He says all scripture. That is, the very words written themselves are God-breathed. The inspiration, according to Paul here, is in the words that are, that are before you in his word. That's the, that's the inspiration that he's talking about. God has breathed these words to you and to me here today. So, so how do we define this? And how, if we're trying to talk about biblical inspiration, how are we going to define it? Well, look at this definition and consider it for a minute. Biblical inspiration refers to the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit upon divinely chosen agents, resulting in writings that are trustworthy and authoritative. So in other words, it is that work by which God, the Holy Spirit, through human writers, human people, again, this is not the you know, holy scroll descending from heaven kind of idea. This is God coming alongside of a person and doing s such a work in and through them that the result is inspired, God-breathed words. And he's given us, through human people, his written word. And it, in its entirety, is given by God. God's, God's word doesn't merely contain revelation. It is not merely a witness to revelation. No, Paul says all, all parts of the scriptures, every bit of the scriptures have been inspired by God. All of his word is revelation. You can't just arbitrarily go through the pages and decide, oh, that must be revelation right there because I agree with it or because science confirms that or because it makes sense to my rationality, or because my pastor told me this, but then the next verse decide that must not be inspired because of those other things. We don't get to pick and choose what is revelation and what is not. If Paul is right in saying all the scriptures are God-breathed, then we accept that all the scriptures are his revelation to us. All of the scriptures, not just some of them. They are all part, the product of his creative breath. In its entirety, it is the revelation by God. All parts have been inspired, and the inspiration extends to the words, not just to the ideas. And as such, we can say, therefore, that God is the author of the Bible. It doesn't mean God himself wrote the pages down, but it means that God, in the sense of being the formal cause of the Bible, is the author of the Bible. He's the one who oversaw and superintended and providentially brought it into being. It didn't just fall out of the sky. As we've said now three times. No, 2 Peter 2, 20. See if, there we go. I want to make, I'm not used to having the clicker, so I'm doing my best to make sure I'm not before, in front or behind me, myself here. So if I have to stop and double check, then you'll know what's going on. 2 Peter chapter 2, he said, uh, Peter writes, no prophecy in scripture ever came, a, came from the prophet's own understanding. All right, so there's the idea that it's not just someone had some insight and so they wrote it down. No, we believe that God himself inspired that person and therefore the inspiration extended to the, to the words themselves. The ideas and the words are inspired by him. But no prophet uttered words on their own, from their own understanding or from their own human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. 
That verb there that's, that is translated in the NLT as moved by can also be translated carried along. And it means more than just that they were being guided or gave, were given some basic, you know, basic direction on which way they should go or what they should say or what they should do. No, it's, it's this idea that they were incorporated into God's own divine initiative. God desires to speak to man and he has incorporated people into that initiative. And as he has incorporated them into that, he is he, he guides them through his determining and constraining influence by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit enables a person to, to, to produce this inspired word from God. He didn't dictate it verbatim, everything that was said and everything that was written. It was not, it's not like they were just sitting there and being sort of completely passive agents, sort of where God kind of possesses their bodies and they're mindless, sort of like blank, while God is inscribing things. No, God comes alongside of people and he utilizes their distinctive personalities and their their distinctive wills. And and these people that he chose to produce this, it was a, a, a collaborative effort, if you want to say it that way. But these people were aided by the Spirit and constrained by the Spirit and guided by the Spirit, carried along by the Spirit to do what God had called them to do. And isn't that the way God works? Isn't that the way God works in the world? He doesn't take over a person and override their will, and they, they become some sort of robot that, you know, they're just puppets on a string, and God is guiding them to do things. And, and, and it's not like God just gives an idea and then says, run along and go do it. No, God comes alongside of you and me, and he he gives us the, the power to do the things he calls us to, but he, he never overrides the will. In fact, he, he releases our will to not care about ourselves or the things of the world. God comes, comes alongside of people and enables them to join him in the work that he's doing. And so when we talk about this, this work of God and carrying along prophets and apostles and, and, and people through whom he, he brought, us, brought to us his revelation, we can think of it like that. He, he doesn't override will. He doesn't dictate verbatim, but he works in and through his people. And he worked in such a way that revelation was communicated and recorded how he wanted, which guarantees that every utterance on every matter in which the Bible speaks is both, is both true and trustworthy. So, even though the Bible is a, is a collection of writings from many different people over a large period of time, we can say that from the Old Testament to the New Testament, all 66 books, and by the way, we'll talk about the process of how we got those 66 books. That's a little preview of what's to come. But we can be confident that every word from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation is the authentic voice of God to man. Paul says in Romans 3, 2, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And I wonder, is that, that's a small font for you, isn't it? Okay. Well, be assured that when I, when I read it, it's what's on the screen. So if you can't see that, maybe you, maybe your glasses aren't as powerful as they need to be this morning. Uh, I'm still learning how to do the, the PowerPoint for you in this space. I'm used to doing it for like the fellowship hall or, or the live stream. So if this is too small for you, I apologize. I'm going to read everything that's up there. So don't, don't worry. But Paul says the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? Well, the things that God has said, that the Old Testament was entrusted to this people and they, they were very meticulous and how they preserved the word of God that was delivered to the people in Jesus' day and then all the way to you and me today. When referring to the scriptures, Jesus says in Matthew 4, verse 4, people do not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word 
that comes from the mouth of God. What is, how is Jesus responding to the temptations of the devil in the wilderness experience? He's quoting the Old Testament scriptures because he knows that the scriptures are true. He knows the scriptures come from the, the voice of God. He knows the scriptures are trustworthy and are his power to overcome whatever temptation would face him. Jesus is our, is our, is our, um, our example, isn't he? He's showing us the way to navigate through this world. It's the same thing that Paul was saying to Timothy. Trust the scriptures. They will guide you through life. They're God's revelation of what is true and what is authoritative and what is reliable in your life. And Jesus says, if it's good enough for me, I'm pretty sure it's good enough for you. As you go through this world faced with all sorts of challenges and temptations yourself. For Jesus and his disciples, when he says every word that comes from the mouth of God, he's referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. You recall when, after his resurrection, when he was traveling on the road to Emmaus and he came alongside some of his disciples who didn't even understand it was him at first. They, they, were, they were assuming Jesus was, was long gone. And they'd heard rumors and a, a whisper of him being back, but they were trying to figure out what it all meant and trying to process the, the events of the last several days and how could this be. And Jesus comes alongside of him and, and he takes these confused disciples, it says in verse 27, through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So while it's interesting to point out that the scriptures are Christological in the sense that they point to Christ, for the sake of our purposes here, I'm trying to point out that for Jesus, the scriptures included the, the writings of the law through the prophets, basically the Old Testament as you and I have it. And Jesus took them through all of that to explain how they all point to him. But here's another thing about what Jesus taught. He also taught that, yes, that you have the, the authentic voice of God in the scriptures of the Old Testament, but... He says there will be a continuing ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so in John in the upper room in chapter 16, he says it is the Spirit who will guide you into all truth. How? Well, he'll guide you into all truth by telling you whatever he receives from me. So Jesus says essentially here that the, the work of revelation that, is, that, that they have come to depend upon from the Old Testament isn't over. There's more to be revealed from the Son through the Spirit to his apostles. 1 Thessalonians 4, 2, and I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, when we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. And so what Paul's saying is, I, I have a confidence that when I am, am teaching you and writing these things, I am I'm doing this by the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is at work in me, just as the Spirit was at work in, in the Scriptures that, that were hand-delivered hand to us from the people of old. It's the Spirit who's giving me words to explain spiritual truths. And because he and the other apostles and those who produced the New Testament, because they were speaking from God, that you could say they're also speaking for God or on behalf of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 2, and 15, we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. We tell you these things directly from the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so from the apostles' perspective, it is obedience to their inspired teachings that is the mark of submission to God himself. If you say you're a Christian, and you say you, you believe in one God, and you affirm the truths of the Old Testament scriptures, and even as they appoint to Christ, 
your, the, the evidence of your submission to, to the lordship of Christ and to the belief in, in him as who he says he was is obedience to his apostles' teachings. You will live your faith out. You will live what, out what you say you believe when you obey the words of, of, his, of the inspired words of the New Testament and, by extension, the Old Testament. Because if they come from God, they speak on behalf of God, and that is God's voice to you and to me. And you can see, even in the New Testament, that the, the different writers regarded each other's writings as inspired scriptures. Look at uh, 1 Timothy 5.18, what Paul says here. He says, For the scripture says, You must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. He's quoting Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. But then he says in the very next breath, And in another place. What does he mean by in another place? Well, another place in the scriptures. Those who work deserve their pay. But who's he quoting? He's not quoting Moses. He's quoting Luke. <laughs> Paul's basically affirming to Timothy that, that Luke's gospel was inspired scripture just like Moses' words in Deuteronomy. Isn't that interesting? That even within the Bible, you see the different voices in the Bible affirming the work of the Spirit in, in their respective contributions. In the same way, of course, you remember that Peter classically referred to Paul's epistles as Scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. He refers to his other Scriptures, as other Scriptures. And so right there, you have multiple voices within the New Testament that are speaking towards and about one another and affirming what the Bible is saying about itself, that all Scripture from Old to New Testament is inspired by God and breathed by God. God has revealed himself in the world and to the world, in the world, to the world. And his words and his actions in history have been recorded and preserved, and they come to us in the Holy Bible, the good book, which you and I like to call it. From cover to cover, all of it is his message about himself to you and to me, and there's nothing like it anywhere else in all the world. Written over a 1,500-year span, spanning 40 generations, by over 40 authors from every walk of life, from kings to peasants to philosophers and fishermen and poets and statesmen and scholars and doctors, people from three different continents writing in three different languages. And yet throughout the hundreds of controversial topics it addresses, you can find one single harmonious message, one voice from Genesis to Revelation. If you were to take 10 authors from just one walk of life, one culture, in one generation, in one place, in one time, on one continent, in one language, in just one controversial subject, let me ask you this, would they agree? <laughs> you know they wouldn't. I mean, I can't get 10 of us to agree on things half the time. It's, it's, it's remarkable that throughout all the great variety and diversity of people in times, in places, in cultures, in situations, and, and matters that are being addressed, through it all, there's this beautiful, single, harmonious voice from cover to cover. Nothing else in history has been read by more people or published in more languages. No other document or collection of documents has been so meticulously, faithfully, and accurately copied and preserved there's more manuscript evidence attesting to the accuracy of the Bible than any other 10 pieces of classical literature combined. And if every Bible in the world 
somehow vanished today off the shelves of the libraries, it could be restored in all its essential parts from the quotations of the remaining books. There's nothing like it in all the world. Now, you might be saying, well, Pastor Sean, none of those little factoids prove anything about whether the Bible is actually the Word of God. And you would be right. That doesn't prove anything. But it does demonstrate how utterly unlike anything else it is from anything that has ever been written. The proof, the proof comes from when you and I, when we open ourselves to the truth of his word and commit ourselves entirely to its authority. That's where the proof comes. In your life, in the people who are watching your life and they see the effect of God's word upon it. Paul's admonition to Timothy is the same one for you and for me as believing Christians in this world full of competing ideas and deceivers and persecution in the midst of these last evil days. The admission, admission to him is the same to you and me. It is to, is to listen to the voices you know and trust. But more importantly, it is that we remain faithful to the things we have been taught from God's word. The God-breathed scriptures are useful to teach us what is true to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. They correct us when we are wrong and teach us to do what is right. And God uses his word to prepare and equip his people for everything he has called them to be and to do. For the word of God is alive and powerful, as we heard already from Carly. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, exposing our innermost thoughts and desires. And it always produces fruit. God's word always produces fruit. It accomplishes exactly what he wants it to do. And it will prosper everywhere that it goes. God has spoken. The question is, will you and I be a people who listen? Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity this morning to to take a moment to Yes, look through continually, always looking through the lens of your word. We want to understand the world and ourselves and you rightly. And we believe that your word is, is inspired revelation to, to make things clear. But sometimes it's helpful to, to not just look through the lens of your word, but to take a moment to look at your word and, and ask questions of what is it really? And in the weeks to come, we'll be, we'll be addressing where it came from and how it came to us and, and, and matters pertaining to its truthfulness and trustworthiness and authority. And, and Lord, we want to be a people of your word. And it's hard because we live in a day when, when people don't want to be a, a people of your word. They want to be a people of their own word. They want to follow their own ideas and desires. And, and, and even whole churches commit themselves over to, to their own sense of what is true and right. And Lord, we don't want to be a people like that. We want to be a people of, of your word. And so help us this morning to, to think clearly and rightly about these things and to be obedient to what we hear your spirit saying to our hearts even now. We repent of any, of any low view of scripture that says part of it is inspired or part of it is revealed or somehow revelation is contained in there and we get to pick and choose what we believe in or, or, or obey. Lord, we repent of that this morning. And we commit ourselves fully over to, to, to every word of your scriptures as the voice of God for our lives. Lord, we, we, we believe it, we trust it, and we seek by the power of your spirit to live it out this day and every day to come. In Jesus' name, amen.